the two people picking us up from the the main highway to drive us into our into the station were the manager and the head stockman and very quickly sort of meeting them we all introduced ourselves and um, the other guys went first and then I said oh hi I'm I'm Anthony and both the manager and head stockman looked at each other and it was that knowing look of uh-huh this guy right so it, um and then the next morning we woke up and I had to explain myself to the manager and explain that I had a court date coming up in a couple of weeks' time, which I needed to be back for. You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Water Tanks. Pioneer Water Tanks exclusively use Australian-made blue scope, colour bond and zinc alum steel up to 2mm thick in the production of their tank walls. And all of the steel that goes into the roof structure is Australian-made. Made locally from the highest quality materials, you can rely on a Pioneer Water Tank. Welcome back to the Central Station Podcast. My name is Steph Coombs and I'm your host. Now, I know I say this every week, guys, but I'm so excited for this episode. So I don't want to give too much away, but long story short, I'm talking to a man named Anthony McNamara who has an incredible story. So picture this, you're fresh out of high school in the city, no agricultural background at all. And you land a job on Newcastle Waters, one of the largest and most prestigious cattle stations in Australia. But you don't even know where it is, or really what is a cattle station and what goes on it. So, you know, you're already probably a little bit on the outer and on the back foot, fish out of water, got a lot lot of catching up to do, you definitely got to prove yourself. But then... Between arriving in Catherine for the staff induction at the Rural College, which CPC does every year, and heading out to Newcastle Waters, something happened which got Anthony a bit of a reputation. So, hence why I'm calling him the ringer with a reputation. Now, this is something which I think a lot of people, or some people perhaps, would, you know, uh, pull up at and maybe turn around, head home, tail between their legs, um, you know, pull a runner, not see it through, all sorts of, you know, it could have gone so many different ways. But the guy that we're speaking to today um, has turned something that happened in his life into an incredible life. Um, And so I'm excited uh, for you guys to listen to this episode. So let's head on over. And um, first up, I, when I was chatting to Anthony, I just asked him, like, how did you even get a job on a cattle station? I guess the way I ended up, um, ended up on a station was, I guess, like every um, 16, 17-year-old kid in, in year 11 and year 12, people start to ask you, where are you going? What are you doing? Are you going to go to university? Are you going to go overseas travelling for a year? And I was probably one of the few of my mates, a lot of my mates were already thinking, oh, we'll go to uni, we'll do engineering, we'll do law, we'll do this and that. And I very much sat back and went, I've got absolutely no idea what I want to do. Um, and going through through school right from 
probably about year eight when I started to get become mates with a lot of the boarders at school and a lot of the a lot of those guys that were coming off properties. Um, I started to get a bit of an interest in in going out to their places for holidays. So I had I had mates in Gundawindi out towards Roma and and this sort of way already where I am now and. I guess I sort of I'd just go out and visit them for holidays, and I think I ended up spending more time over the years on holidays with them on their places than I did going on holidays with my own family. And it came about um, that one of the the boys I was rowing with at school, and I was in year twelve, and he was uh, year eleven. His mum said to said to my parents, "Oh, if Anthony's really keen to take a year off and take some time away." Um, I've got the the details of this lady who helps with um, the recruitment for some of the big pastoral companies and she passes on names and um, gets jobs with um, AACO, Kidman's, CPC, um, all the big the big companies and I sort of went, oh, that'll be could be a bit of fun, might be a bit cool and um, sent to send an email off and. Um, Thought nothing of it uh, for a while, and that was sort of June, July, and I was still going through rowing with one of the clubs in Brisbane. And then uh, October came around, and my 18th birthday came around, and I got a—I can't remember whether it was a phone call or a or an email, or a, I think it might have even been a, a package in the mail, sort of a, a sign the sign the paperwork now, or you know, please contact us, and we'll we'll do the rest, and. On my 18th birthday, I got home after school, and um, along with, I think, along with a carton of beer or you know some drinks or something for my 18th, I got given the um, the paperwork that said, "Congratulations, we'd love to um, offer you a position at at Newcastle Waters." And I went, "Oh, I'm not even sure where that is." So I didn't even know. I knew a town called Newcastle existed, but I didn't know anything else. So I Quickly googled it, or you know, looked it up on the on the internet, and found out as much information as I could. And very quickly, um, I guess over the next couple of months, really had to to pack my stuff up and and get get as much as I could into into a couple of bags to head up there. And got up there, and I think I was up there in mid March, I think. So. I love that you just kind of casually stumbled your way into a, a job on one of the biggest cattle stations in Australia, and you're like, oh, I don't even know where it is. Like, um, yeah, what? Terrifying, terrifying prospect. Not knowing, not knowing where I was going, and not really understanding, um, understanding what consolidated pastoral was as well. I didn't, you know, I'd never heard of the company. I had. No idea that it was um, one of the largest sort of cattle cattle companies or pastoral companies in in the country, and I was sort of sitting back, very blasé about it, um, and that's probably a lot to do with a lot to do with the fact of growing up in in Brisbane and not really having the exposure to it that a lot of my mates certainly did um, going through school. So that was yeah, they they found it quite entertaining as well. They they were like, do you even know where that is, Macca? I went, oh, yeah, it's in the middle somewhere. <laughs> now, 
at this stage, so you'd been going out on your school holidays to friends' farms, but what kind of skills did you actually have? Like, could you ride a bike? Had you ever been near a cow before? You know, how green were you? Um, I suppose in, I had a, I did work experience for a week on a, my younger sister had a friend who lived in Roma or just outside of Roma. Um, and so I rang her parents and I said, oh, can I come and do a, I think year 11 or year 12, I think was the year we we're doing work experience in the school. Most of the boys, um, all set off and, and went, oh, well, we've got a work experience at a law firm or at this place, or we want to be a journalist. So we're going to a newspaper or we're going to wherever. And I said, oh, I'm going to these people's farm I know in Roma. And I had a good chat with him and, and he said, um, I rang him because I, I think I used him as a reference. And I, I rang him and I said, oh, I'm going to Newcastle Waters. It'll be, it'll be great. I'm, I'm really excited. He goes, that's great. So you know the little bit of cattle work that we did out here? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, tell them you know nothing. <laughs> I said, oh, but I've, I've ridden your quad bike a couple of times. He goes, yeah, no, that's, that's nothing. Don't even tell them you can ride a motorbike. Tell them you can't ride a horse. Tell them you just you know nothing and you want to learn it all. And I remember the first day we got to the, we got to the Catherine Rural College there and the, and Consolidated put us through two weeks at the Rural College and the first week was um, was very much a, a week where we got introduced to the guys that were all going, guys and girls that were going to the station um, that we were going on, all the other stations, as well as uh, getting sort of a few of the basic skills that we needed. Uh, and I remember the first day we were sitting down and, uh, they said, all right, we need to know uh, what everyone's horse riding abilities are like. Uh, stand over here if uh, you've ridden a horse before and you're reasonably confident or stand over here if you're sort of confident but a little bit unsure, done a bit of riding but not much, and stand over here if you've done none. And I just went, oh, there's no point in faking it. I'm going over here. I, I know nothing about horses of you know, I wouldn't even, you know, I basically just went, yeah, I've never ridden a horse. And they went, okay, this is going to be interesting for you. I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> Were you, did you have like nerves? I mean, once you realised you are actually going up, was there ever a point where you're like, oh, my God, like what am I doing? I don't know how to do any of this stuff. Or were you just kind of a bit blase about it until, you, you know, the whole way through? until you got there? Um, it was probably probably around Christmas time. Um, Christmas time, a couple of months before, still sort of a month and a half, two months before I left, I was sitting back really quite nervous about it um, and I was never one that really got, I don't think I ever really got nervous, probably until later in life um, when I started doing doing different things. I got really nervous just because of a lot of things that were happening that were happening at home um, with my family and um, during that that last year of school, mum and dad had decided to separate and and you know that's never fun no matter what no matter what age you are and um, I still had my younger sister was still at school so she was uh, a couple of years behind me and my older sister uh, was a couple of years into uni and was. 
I think she was finishing up uni, so she was going out to to get a job. And um, I I very I struggled a little bit through year twelve with that, and I actually sat back and I spoke to mum and I'd spoken to a, a counsellor in that time and and said and he said just go and do it just go and do it and if you do it for 12 months it gets you away for 12 months and it gets you it it'll it might allow you to just hit the refresh button and so I just went okay all right that sort of calmed my nerves a little bit um and I don't think I actually got nervous after that until I actually landed feet on the ground on the station and went oh boy here we go now it's one thing to start a new job in a new industry um so that can be pretty daunting itself especially like I said when you're in a new industry and you maybe you're not skilled in that but you also had a few other challenges to work through in that first year that kind of made turning up to the station a bit harder can you tell us about that yeah um during the the two weeks at the rural college um as you do when you put a or as it as happens when you put a bunch of um 17 to sort of 20 year olds all in the one spot um we all went out as you do sort of you know virtually every night and i guess it it was no different to to i guess uni life sometimes um and we went out i think it was it might have been our second to last night or it was in our last week um and we went out and we all as you know as it i suppose everyone everyone did it um we all drove into into catherine and um, if anyone knows knows catherine the rural college is uh, just slightly out of town and so we all drove in thinking nothing of it um because we'd done it the weekend before and i we i think we started it had a few drinks at the bowls club and we'd stayed there for quite a while and then we um we went around to the main pub and we decided we wouldn't go into the main pub because there was two already two police cars out the front so we thought well let's not go in there something's obviously going down and uh we turned around and uh, myself and one other guy uh, were in the car and I was driving along and we um, we thought, oh, we'll go down the back streets because there won't be any any of the coppers down the back streets and we ended up uh, going straight through a giveaway sign and um, I guess, yeah, T-boning a, another car on our way through and um, it rattled both of us um, pretty hard and then we do, you know, we swapped details and um, it certainly didn't make it any any easier that it wasn't my car and the the lady that we we t-boned was um, probably oh she was well to us anyway at that stage she was certainly middle aged so that certainly didn't help um, and then we went we did all that we went back to the rural college and as soon as we got back to the rural college the the police paddy wagon was there waiting for us um, and asked us pretty quickly who was driving. Um, and I said, you know, me being the, I guess the slightly honest um, city boy, I said, oh, that was that was me. And so they breath tested me there, and because um, I was only in my P license and needing at that time, and and still now you need to be zero blood alcohol on your P's. And um, I think I was point oh eight something, point oh nine. So I was nudging well and truly double the legal limit 
um, taken back in the back of the paddy wagon, which is an experience I'm not even sure you could describe it, um, and it's certainly not something I'd, I'd want to do ever again. Um, and did the big breathalyzer at the at the police station. I was fortunate that it went down to I think 0.067, I think. So it was. Um, yeah, pretty daunting as a as an eighteen year old walking in there and and walking into the the Catherine Police Station at um, you know and looking in into the different cell you know into the I mean really the drunk tank where they just taken a, a whole lot of people and and thrown them in there that were were um, obviously intoxicated and were just sleeping it off for the night um, and they unknown to me they'd rung they'd rung Newcastle Waters and. They'd rung the manager, and that was at about probably about two o'clock in the morning. I think they they rang the manager at Newcastle Waters. So that um, at that stage, I hadn't even met him. Um, I knew I knew his name. I knew that he was the manager of Newcastle Waters, but had no idea um, who he was. And then, yeah, I got. When we got to Newcastle Waters, um, he we jumped off the bus. Uh, we all jumped on the bus down to Newcastle Waters, got off the bus, and um, the two people picking us up from the the main highway to drive us into a into the station were the manager and the head stockman. And very quickly, sort of meeting them, we all introduced ourselves, and um, the other guys went first. And then I said, "Oh, hi, I'm." I'm Anthony, and both the manager and head stockman looked at each other, and it was that knowing look of, uh-huh, this guy, right. So, it, um, and then the next morning we woke up, and I had to explain myself to the manager and explain that I had a court date coming up in a couple of weeks' time, which I needed to be back for, and um, I think. Probably some of the worst things about that was I used um, I used some references to um, try and I guess alleviate uh, the penalty that I was going to suffer um, in a legal sense the penalties I was going to suffer from from the manager and and head stockman were you know they were they were pretty rough and rough and tumble but that was um, I guess for me I'd you know, getting all the all the really dodgy jobs, and you know, sweep the workshop, muck out the stables, make sure everything's clean. You know, make sure everyone's saddle is oiled up and looking spick and span. You know, here's here's the whippersnipper, here's the homestead area, and go around the whole homestead area on the back end of the whippersnipper, um, which wasn't fun. But um, in the legal sense, my my uncle was, um, he's a solicitor in Brisbane and he put me in contact with the lawyer in Darwin who drove down and um, said, oh, let's get some character references. So I, I rang, um, I think I was probably quite smart in the people I rang. I rang the, the director of rowing who I'd rowed, who was my coach when I was at school and, um, I used the, I think I used the headmaster of the school that I was at too. So I had to fess up to some pretty big people in my life to that I'd done something pretty stupid. 
Um, and then I think I also used a previous employer as well. I'd done some work as a, a builder's labourer, so I, I used the the builder I worked for to give some character references. So that, um, yeah, certainly was a a pretty pretty tough experience to go through at 18 and fresh out of school and probably the most immature uh, immature person um, I could have been, I think, at that time. How did you cope with that, though? Because it's one thing, if this hadn't happened, you at the station, I suppose you already would have been somewhat or felt somewhat a bit of a fish out of water and on the back foot um, and like you're playing catch up anyway because I know with, I'm sure with the other people they've hired, usually it is a lot of farm kids or people with experience. So you were kind of already, I suppose, a little bit on the outer um, in that sense or, you know, whether or not you were, I'm sure you probably felt that way, but then you had this to deal with and, you know, so you're having to almost prove yourself twice. Like, yes, I'm, I'm good enough because I'm, even though I'm from the city, um, and then yes, I'm good enough even though I've made this mistake. How did you? A lot of people, I think, would probably just pack it in. And I mean, I have heard stories of people doing a runner in the middle of the night, just packing their bags and heading off. Um, so how do you? How did you push through that and just keep showing up every day and putting on your face? Um, I think in the back of my mind, I've, both my my family was really supportive um and i guess that's sort of one of the biggest things that has has kept me going through a lot of things that i've done since then um i've always had a really supportive family both my sisters um and and mum and and dad and and everyone has been really supportive of of what i've done they've they've they have always questioned it a little bit um but i've also meant that's also meant that I guess I sort of question it as well, um, but they've always, always sort of stood beside me in whatever decision I've made. And I guess I, there was a lot um, I really had to had to kind of suck it up a little bit. And it certainly, if I had my time over, I probably would have tried to speak a bit, speak to people about it. Um, and I was fortunate in the sense that. Uh, the head stockman there at the time, he was very much someone who he must have been in his, I think he was in his late, tw- fairly late 20s. So, um, and he had told me about some, some dumb decisions he'd made when he was younger. And I was pretty lucky to, um, I think it was my second or third day, he and I went for a drive to, to do a ball run to help out. And because um, at the time it was still too wet to, to do any mustering so we went for a drive and getting to know him a little bit on a on a personal level was really handy um and he and I over the, in the two years I was at I was at Newcastle Waters it um it certainly made the two years that I was that I was there a lot easier um and just being able to talk through a lot of things with him um it I very much sort of in a way, I guess, attached myself to him at any time, any time I could, and uh, any time I could have a bit of a chat away from, away from the rest of the guy, you know, the people in the camp and um, the other people around the station. If I could have a, a five-minute conversation with him just about whatever was going on here and there, um, it certainly made it easier. 
And was that mainly just about stuff at work that you guys would talk about or did it sort of go beyond that? Um, initially, it was very much about work. Um, initially, it was very much me sort of asking questions. It was me asking a lot of why questions. I think I turned into a turned into a, into a bit of a five-year-old kid in always asking why. Um, and I, I think I still do that now when I, I speak to some people and I say, oh, why does that happen or why do you do that and why do you do it this way? I've never seen it done, but why do you do it that way and is there other ways you can do it? And um, after a while, I think once we both felt relatively comfortable, I guess, talking to each other, it um, it popped up um, that year that my, my dad was getting remarried and um, he'd had a similar thing happen with his family. His, his father got remarried and um, I said to – I spoke to him about it and he goes, well, you just – go down and and go to the wedding go to it and you know if you if you're um you know if you if your dad you know dad had asked me to be his best man and um he I spoke to the head stockman about that and I said oh you know how what should I do what should I say you know here I am at sort of 18 19 years old by this stage and didn't really know um, how to how to process that, and I'd never thought I'd had mates whose parents had separated, and I never thought I'd have to go through that. And then going through it, and then realizing that I've got this to also contend with. Um, yeah, and that, and he helped me a lot through that. Just talking talking through it with him, it, it certainly made it a lot easier to, I guess, make the decision in the end, which was to come back and and sort of say to dad you know I'm I'm going to do it um but I'm only going to do it because I'm your son and for no other reason I think that that sort of really set set me up that I actually started to feel like I was growing and starting to grow up and mature how important was having that relationship that um I suppose mentorship in a way with the head stockman for you um I suppose, and do you think it's important for other people coming out to stations to be able to have someone like that that they could talk to? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, even if it, it doesn't have to be the head stockman, um, for me it, it just happened to be the head stockman because he and I, I guess we had very similar personalities. Um, but just being able to being able to have a conversation with someone that, you know, even if you're sitting down at the end of the day and you've had a tough day and, you know, it might be that something happened in the yards or, you know, you opened the wrong gate and a whole heap of cattle got out into the holding paddock that you didn't want out there. In the grand scheme of things, um, sometimes there can be mistakes that are that are quite big and they cost money to, to fix. Um, but then at the same time, if you look at look at the grant sort of the overall picture it it's a relatively small small thing in in the whole sort of run of the year and you do sort of find people at the at the different stations that you talk to and you you have those conversations with people and you say oh look I'm I just I don't know what what I did but I'm, I thought I did it right but it 
it turns out I, I didn't. And usually, the, you know, hopefully the other person's pretty um, pretty understanding and, and they've probably made a similar mistake or even made the same mistake so they can go, well, look, you know, don't worry about the mistake. It's Everyone makes them, the, the manager makes them, the, the CEO of the company makes them. You know, you look at all the all the famous and important people around the world, they've all made mistakes somewhere along the line that they probably probably now sit back and think, oh, don't worry about that anymore. I think even though I, I don't know the head stockman um, that you had and I've never met him, listening to you talk about this experience, I'm just, just sitting here right now, like I've got this feeling, I, I guess it's like a, a feeling of gratitude for him even though I don't know him because I just think it could have gone the other way, like if you didn't have that with him. So you, you've turned up with this reputation already on the back foot. You could have been ostracised or bullied or, you know, kind of, you know, and, and you either stuck it out for the year or, or just left earlier. But by having, by developing this like mentorship, not only did you, were you able to stick it out, you ended up, you must have done good because you were allowed back for a second year. Um, you had your personal growth as well. And I just feel like it's, you know, things, you know, sometimes you hit a fork in the road and things could have gone one way or the other. And I don't know, it's weird. Like, I don't even know you, but I'm just so glad that that's the way it turned out. Like, it's just such a, I don't know, a good story. Yeah, I I certainly, you know, I guess I look back at it now and, and he was, I guess he and, and the manager in part at the time were very much... Um, instrumental in terms of me growing and and me I remember coming back at at the end of that year at the end of my first year at Christmas and I think the first thing which I think I came back midway through that year um my sister was having her 21st and um I flew back and um no one knew I was flying back and no one knew what was going on the only people that knew were mum and my younger sister um who were my Mum was picking me up from the airport and sort of sneaking in under the cover of darkness and I, I turned up at my sister's at my sister's um twenty first and, and she just went, What what what's going on? And I dropped in to see my um my younger sister's netball game earlier in the day and this was only still only about six months into the into the first year or sort of part way through. And I sort of walked along and said hello to some of the parents of of my sister's friends and, and they all said to mum afterwards, they said, gosh, he's he's grown so much in, in six months, you know, so much he's confident, he's happy, he's bouncing around, chatting to people and I think that's probably probably where I did my most growing. I was almost forced into growing up. So instead of being, I guess, the, the 18, classic 18-year-old of, Going out to to parties and losing your losing your collective collective brain cells in in the nightclubs of Brisbane while going to while trying to be hung over in a uni class it was um, it was more me sort of growing up and having to deal with sort of being on a multi million dollar multi million acre prop cattle station going okay one wrong decision sort of left or right could end up with me with a broken limb or one of my one of my workmates with a broken limb or you know getting getting run into by a cow or or anything like that so I think that was probably 
and having him, having the head stockman there particularly certainly helped a lot with with personal growth. And so you you obviously pulled through that first year and were allowed to come back for a second year. Does that mean you kind of I suppose you must have gone up in the manager's books a little bit and kind of earned his respect as well if he let you come back? Yeah, and I think the what I tried to do um I tried to make sure that what I very quickly realized was that you the way for me to to earn the respect of everyone and I I was certainly the drink driving at the beginning of the year certainly put me very low on the on the respect in in the line of respect and I knew I had to build that back up again and I really just sort of took it upon myself to just ask any time you know is there more stuff I can do or I'd try and get the jobs done a hundred percent of the time, every time, and even earlier than than expected. So if they thought this job might need to might take all day, and you know he'll be back at five or six o'clock, I'd try and get it done by lunchtime. But make sure it was a hundred percent right. Everything was, you know, I guess all the all the eyes were dotted and all the T's were crossed. And I'd get back and say, "Is there more I can do? What else can I do? Is there something else? Are there other people around the place that might need help?" Or um, and just continue trying to really just make sure that they knew I was working hard and and was a hard worker. And coming through coming through the sports at school and and certainly coming through rowing at school, where I suppose unlike unlike rugby trials and that sort of thing at school, where it was it was where it was up to the coaches as to who was selected in the top team or the next team down. Rowing was very much dependent on on the person and um, I think that was definitely the thing that set me up going up there. I knew to be selected in the best teams and the best crews in rowing, I had to work really hard and work at a different level to everyone else to be better than everyone else. And I think I took that up there and went, okay, I'm probably never going to be better than some of the people here, but I want to be just as good or the best I can be at at this particular part. And I think as the year went on, I started to get better. I was, um, I went off and got my truck license so I could go and do a few little runs in the in the horse truck. I could drive the horse truck. I could do all that sort of stuff and. I think as they started to see me getting more involved and getting more interested in doing a lot in doing a lot more, they certainly sat back and went, Yeah, we're we're on it with this guy. I think he's I think he's okay. The team you know and love from Landmark Broom are now operating as Northern Rural Supplies. It's business as usual with the same team, same phone number and same location. The only thing they've changed is the colour of their shirts which is blue, if you were wondering. Northern Rural Supplies proudly service the Kimberley and Pilbara regions, specialising in livestock sales, real estate, animal health and management, fencing, fertiliser, water and all other requirements. They stock your everyday needs to feed your dogs, cats, horses, chooks, camels and even goats. The whole team is based in Broome, so make sure you give them a call for all your agricultural and semi-rural needs. 
What is it that you loved about being up there so much that brought you back for a second year? Um, I'm not really too sure. I, th- I guess I think about it now and probably one of the things that took me back for a second year was I guess in what, when I went for, for my first year, I had a few mates um, back in Brisbane that were placing bets as to, as to how long I would last. I think they put about about five or ten bucks in each, and they all said, you know, varying varying timelines, which none of them um, picked. A, I don't think anyone picked one year. Um, certainly, no one picked two years, and definitely no one picked three years. Um, but I think it was a it was, I guess, an element of freedom. The the element of freedom where you know, you might be walking cattle for, I think, one of our longest walks. There's something about ten or ten or fifteen k's or something we had to walk cattle, so it was going to take most of the day. And I just remember we had the cattle. The mob was probably strung out over, you know, a good hundred meters or two hundred meters, and just and they were some of the easiest walking cattle that we'd walked all 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 year, and we we're just really just kind of cruising along and I think just looking around and um, and just I think we're walking across, I can't remember, I think we're walking across from or walking down from one tree bore to I think it was number seven yards on Newcastle and it's just a complete open plain and the horizon is the tree line and that's, where number seven yards was. So you're walking to the horizon and you're just going, how can I see this far? And all I'm seeing is two, two, three hundred head of cattle and six people on horses. This is insane. How, how does that even work? So that sort of big open space and not being stuck in a classroom or in a, in a uni lecture theatre, I think was probably the probably the big things for me. It's um, it's funny as you were describing that because I've also spent some time at Newcastle, and when you said number seven yards, that was the main yards I worked at when I was in Wiener Camp. And I, as soon as you described that, I could see exactly what you were describing, and um, I think that's something that. I suppose a lot of people feel or from from speaking to other people is that sometimes we describe it as like the red dirt gets in your veins and, you know, it's in your blood and you can't get it out of you. But really there is just something about being up there when, like you said, that freedom and being able to see so far and just see things that, you know, other people aren't seeing. And I suppose you have those moments where you're like, somebody's actually paying me to do this. In saying that, there are days where you are like, I can't believe I'm only being paid this much to do this. But you do have those good days that kind of just stick with you. Yeah, and I used to, I, I used to love it where we used to have, um, you know, we used to sort of have jokes over the over the radios, and I think we'd all be sitting around, and occasionally, especially when it'd be in the lead up to camp drafts, we used to um, the head stockman was riding to his camp drafts, and uh, he'd occasionally occasionally bring one of his camp drafting horses on the on the walk with us and he'd walk down to where we were and he'd say, Oh, just, just walk in there and just see if you can cut one out and I'll, I'll chase it and bring it back. And it was, all it was, was 
probably one killing some time and and sort of I guess nullifying the the boredom that can sometimes set in when you're walking for 15 k's and you and the cattle are doing nothing. Um, but doing that little things like that and then swapping off the horse and jumping on the motorbike and doing the same thing and I guess the the fun part but also the most terrifying part is when you're going flat stick across the black soil on the in that in that area of Newcastle waters you're never quite sure what's coming up about five meters in front of you that you might need to look out for whether it's a an old log that someone's dropped there or or a hole that's going to swallow the bike so you you sort of the adrenaline sort of really kicks in and and you have a lot of fun with it which is I think the the good part and like you said you you sit back and you go how am I being paid to do this again were there any are there any particular memories from the two years you spent at Newcastle that's come to mind when you think about like your favorite memories and things that you'll always remember like stories that you kind of tell around a campfire um I think probably most of them most of them seem to revolve around around the different camp drafts that we were able to go to and and going to I remember the it was Catherine's show in I think might have been my could have been my first or my second year up there and um, Dad came up to visit, and Dad said, oh, "I'll come up and visit um, during one of the weeks, uh, you know, for for sort of ten days. I'll come up for a few days at the property and at the station, and um, and then I'll come for come for some time at at Catherine's show." And I was like, "Oh, yes, that that'll be pretty cool, Dad. That'll be that'll be awesome." And we um, the first the first day Dad came down, so Dad picked up his hire car in Darwin and drove down and um, as you drive into sort of the station complex of Newcastle Waters, you drive you drive straight ahead and you turn right to sort of go to the main station complex and the office and if you drive or you turn right, sorry, to go up to the main sort of station complex and if you go straight ahead, you end up in the car park for the, for the big house, which is where... Um, uh, where Ken Warriner was living, and um, and Dad drove straight in there, and um, just got out and thought, oh, this must be where I go. Um, and Dad jumped out and wandered in and and started having a chat. And I remember coming back in from I think I'd been out fencing for most of the day, so I came back in from fencing, you know, sweating like a madman, and um, I got a call over the radio as I was getting food from the kitchen and I was like, oh, Anthony, you on channel? I'm like, yeah, what, what's up? Oh, your dad's over at the big house having dinner. You're you're invited over to the big house to have dinner with your dad and everybody. I was like, oh, right <laughs> how, how did dad end up in the big house? What's going on? Oh, and that's I said so to dad, I said, dad, I said, dad, how did you end up here? He goes, oh, I just drove in. I was like, oh, good one, dad. I feel like well, you know, now, that's the Kerry well, Packer house that is like it is a beautiful. I mean, it has wings. Like it's just yeah, yeah. It's, it's got that main sort of living yeah. area in the middle, and then it's got the the wings out either side. And you know, you type Newcastle Waters Newcastle Waters Station into Google Images, and that's probably yeah. one of the one of the first sort of five hundred images that pop up the aerial shots of that house. And so that was. Um, that was pretty funny, and then even taking Dad up to 
driving with dad up into up into Catherine and dad sort of never having really I guess um left Brisbane a lot um to go out I mean we've been out west and on camping holidays and stuff like that through western Queensland but never going through the northern territory and and coming up there with I guess a, a a glorified local in myself and me knowing sort of you know oh that's what you know that's where this happens that's where this happens oh you don't go to that pub and um that little bit of local knowledge that I guess you go into any any rural town and you sit down with a local for five minutes and they go, oh, yeah, no, you don't go there to that town, that pub, or you don't go to that restaurant or, you know, don't go to that place there because, you know, this will happen or this does happen there. And I think um, – and Dad dad was sort of – he was blown away, I think, a little bit by by that. And he um, got to see the, the camp draft that I was in. I was in the camp draft that weekend and – and that was a lot of fun. I ended up coming third somehow. I don't know how that happened. Um, you know, I'd only really been riding a horse for about 18 months. So at um, 18 months on a horse and managed to come third, I think, in the in one of the – I can't remember what camp draft it is now. I've still got the ribbon hanging up on my wall and at mum's house at the moment. So it's it's um, that's sort of a bit of a memory, I guess, and one of the few things that I've still got um, from my time up there is – which is always really fun, fun to look at. Did you ever end up staying up north during a wet season and kind of experiencing that time of year? Yeah, I was really lucky um, or lucky or unlucky, depending on how you look at it in terms of wet seasons. Um, I was really lucky at the end of my second year, um, I went across to help out um, at Kirkimby, which is another one of the places that CPC owned um, and they, I think they'd only just started putting um, putting workers on there because originally they were running it as part of Bunda, which is right next door. Um, and I was there for a couple of weeks, and um, I then got approached by, uh, I think, sort of like the two IC of the company, and he came over to me as we were, we were branding branding in the yards, and he said, "Oh, Anthony, do you mind um, having a chat with me?" And I, immediately I had flashbacks to my first week at Newcastle and in, in my first year I was like, oh, God, I've done something wrong, something's happened. I was like, oh, what's happened? What have I done wrong? Did I, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I drove my own car here and I smashed a headlight on my own car but that wasn't a company car. I don't know why they'd bring that up. Like, oh, I haven't done anything. And, my, you know, your brain starts going wild and he said, oh, well, wondering if you'd like to do um, – spend some time up here during the wet. And I went, oh, yeah, that'd be all right. And he said, oh, it'll just be you and it'll just be you and the chopper pilot. We're going to have a, a chopper pilot based here so you can do bore runs from the helicopter, check things out. If you need to, you can land and do quick repairs and, and that. And he goes, other than that, there's not really a whole lot um, you need to do aside from a few fencing runs maybe with, in the Toyota, if you can, if you can get there. Otherwise, we'll just you'll just have to go up and do it in the chopper. And I went, oh yeah, that'll be fun. That'll be great. So I think mid January, uh, mid to late January, I I drove up. Um, I bought myself my second second four wheel drive, which I bought from um, the head stockman at Newcastle Waters. I bought his brother in law's Toyota Land Cruiser U. 
So I was really excited that I had a ute to start off with. <laughs> um, drove up there. I think uh, there was some flooding through Longreach on my way up, so I stopped and had a chat to one of the policemen outside of Longreach and he said, and I said, oh, do you reckon I'll get through this through some of this flood water? He goes, I'm surprised you had to ask him that car, mate. Off you go. And so I sort of went, oh, righto, off we go. And then, um, yeah, sort of got to Kirkimby and, and spent the wet season up there, which was which was really fun, um, you know, spending a lot of time flying around in the helicopter and um, seeing sort of waterfalls and um, sort of swimming holes that were that were on the station that unless you worked on the station or you were able to fly a helicopter and, and got permission to land, or I guess you, you wouldn't ever know or you wouldn't even see. So that was sort of one of the days where I was really happy about about having that job. After that wet season at Kakimbi, where did you go to next? Did you stay up in From the there, industry? Yeah, so I stayed up. Uh, I went up to Carlton Hill, so just outside of Kununurra. Um, which was a bit of a change. Um, it was a little bit of a change from, I guess, Newcastle Waters in that while it's, it was still a, a very much a, a bit, I mean, it still is, it's a big station um, and it's a really beautiful homestead area. Um, it was a different different manager, uh, different head stockman and it very much, I think that was the year that, I started to sort of question whether or not I really wanted to stay up there. Um, and probably a little bit of that was to do with the head stockman I was working with up there. He was only he was only a year or two years older than I was, so it, I think he maybe sort of – he'd spent a lot of time on a few of the other places and he sort of looked at me and went, oh, you've just spent two years at Newcastle Waters. Oh, that's not real. You know that's not the real the real world. That's the you know that's the that's the pretty boy place. That's the you know the that's the pretty boy place where you know the Packers will come along and and see that place. They don't pop around and see everyone else. They just go to Newcastle and all the guys at Newcastle get introduced to to the Packers and you know they're they're the go- you know they're seen as the sort of the high the high society of of the company and. You sort of, I guess, yeah, with two years at Newcastle sort of ending up with, I guess, not only the reputation that was still following me from from my first year up there, but also the the reputation at Newcastle was a bit, um, it was, I guess, the, the high society, I guess, in, in a way amongst the company. It, I don't think it quite quite sort of worked well for him. Um, and the manager there as well, he was... I think I don't. He and I had very much pers- a personality difference. Is probably the the nicest way of putting things. And so, how did that year go for you then? Because um, I suppose you know, after two years and having such a positive experience at Newcastle Waters, uh, not not to say that Carlton Hill wasn't a positive experience, but have this different experience. And it's you know, first year is your gap year. You know, you're just taking a break from school. Second year, oh well, I felt pretty empowered, and I learned a lot in my second in my first year so I might just do this for another year but then when you kind of get into a third year I suppose even if you'd stayed at Newcastle that's when you'd probably start asking questions anyway about well how long am I going to be up here for is this just a really long gap year or is this 
you know, the path I'm headed on now. How did that sort of play out at Carlton Hill for you? Yeah, I think I got through I got through the first round muster. Um, got through the first round muster and we were, we were in between uh, in between round one and round two. And I think I that was when I'd really started to started to notice, I guess the I guess I'd yeah, I wasn't quite sure um what I was doing and, and whether or not it was it was sort of a I guess a turning point whether I stuck it out um and you know went, all right, this is probably just one of those years that everyone has in any job. You know, everyone has a year where they they look back and they go, Oh, it probably wasn't my best year and it wasn't my best best time but um I think for me I sat back and I went, Oh, maybe I'll maybe if I do something different and I step away from the stock camp and I do something different Maybe I can. Maybe I'll. I'll really enjoy it. And it was probably, um, I guess, a, a sort of a turn of events that led me to to taking up doing the ball running um, for a, a couple of months at at Carlton Hill, where I'd been. We'd been mustering some. I think we'd been mustering some wieners, and there was four or five of us over there on the um, on one one set of yards on the place and. We'd all driven around there in the in the truck, and um, I was the the I guess the most experienced um, hand over there. So I I was there and and drafting them, and I stood up on one of the gates, um, just as you send the from the, the sort of the little yard into the round yard, and I stood up on one of the gates, and I didn't put the chain across because I thought oh, I won't need to do that. There's only three wieners in the little round yard, and um, we don't. Got most of them out, and then one of them decided to run back at the gate that I was standing on, and I managed to. Um, I've happened fairly quickly, and I've managed to ended up crunching my leg in between two rails. Um, and I thought that's it; I'm done for the year. Um, but then I ended up sort of waiting for about an hour. Um, for a helicopter to arrive because I guess the, the funny part of the story is the helicopter the helicopter pilot had to wait until he'd sobered up enough from the night before um, to fly the helicopter out to me and then when we landed in Kununurra we had to wait for the ambulance drivers to sober up enough from the night before um, <laughs> to drive the ambulance to pick me up from the from the airport so <laughs> I think by the time I got to, I got to the Got to the hospital in Kununurra. I think I'd been, it had been about three and a half hours or give or take, so almost would have been quicker to just drive. Um, so we ended up with that. But once I got into, into the ambulance and all that, they did the x-rays. Um, there was a, a little break in, in my leg, which was, which was fine. Um, but what they were really worried about, it was starting to swell up. So it was starting to, I think they call it compartment syndrome. So the blood can travel down to the muscles and everything, but it can't travel back up because of the swelling. And I remember the doctor coming in and saying to me, I said, oh, uh, Mr. McNamara, so we, um, you know, we've, we've uh, got something to tell you. And I went, oh, yeah, okay. You know, usually happens when a doctor comes into, into, your, into your hospital room and, um 
he said, oh, so we've got three options. Option one is your, you know, your, the swelling in your leg goes down by itself and we don't have to do anything. Option two is we make some small incisions around your calf muscle to alleviate some of the pressure and that just sort of lets the pressure out. And option four, option three is um, we've got the flying doctor on standby and we'll have to fly you to either Darwin or Perth. And my brain sort of started spinning at that point and I went, why, why would I go to Darwin or Perth? And then he goes, oh, if the, the muscle starts to die, um, it means we, we have to amputate your leg. I went, oh, okay, can I just ring my mum? <laughs> I get mum on the phone and, and mum had... Um, in between all of that time, mum had gone, we'd gone skiing over the Christmas break in, in Canada and mum had torn her ACL. So she was dealing with that and she was in a, she was in with an orthopedic surgeon at the time, conveniently enough when I rang and she goes, oh, I'm just in with the surgeon. I said, oh, good. I might need that. Um, I've broken my leg and apparently I've got compartment syndrome. So mum quickly sort of puts the phone on loudspeaker and I have a chat and we've, sort of have about, thir- I reckon we probably had about a thousand different plans um, in terms of what was going on and I think for about 24 hours I didn't sleep as the nurses kept coming in and, and measuring the the circumference of my calf muscle just to see whether the swelling was going down overnight, which it, it ended up going down by itself, which was probably the lucky, um, the lucky side of it, but it also meant that me choosing to go and do the ball running actually probably was quite a good thing in terms of you know I don't have to um don't have to be running around the yards and I don't have to be moving around and uh or as much uh, but certainly changing gears in the manual in the manual Toyotas was a little bit testing when you're pushing the clutch in with a, a partly broken leg and and a swollen calf muscle you you struggle struggle through it a little bit I think um, that's a great example, though, of how people should really note the importance of gate safety. I think gates are one of the most dangerous things on a cattle station, but not really seen that way um, until something like that happens. But also, just did you ever stop and think like, I almost lost my leg because of a wiener? Like you think about all the, the angry mama cows and the bulls and all the other animals and stuff that you come across, you know, sinkholes while you're on the bike all this dangerous stuff and at the end of the day it's just a little wiener that knocks you down yeah yeah i think it was it was possibly one of the funniest things i look back at it now and it's it's probably one of the funniest things um the, the you know piddly little wiener was the one thing that one thing that took me down and um i've been knocked over by you know i've been run into by old cranky spay cows in the yards at at Newcastle and, and at Carlton Hill as well. And, you know, you're mustering some of the clean skin cattle as well at, at Carlton Hill and you go, how how was it that it was just a wiener that got me? How did that work? Yeah. <laughs> and how did the rest of that year pan out for you as boar runner? You know, if you were already feeling, I suppose, um, you know, things are different for you compared to your time at Newcastle, how did the rest of that year pan out i mean you're you're coping with an injury but then also just the different dynamic of being there and then a new role on the station yeah i think i very quickly i think i started to get a little bit disheartened and i think a little bit of that was 
was being, I guess, somewhat immobilised by having a having an injury and not really sort of. I guess I started to lose my. I started to lose the excitement that each day would bring, and I remember, you know, I mean, I remember being out on when we'd be out on stock camp and we'd be mustering and you'd bounce out of your swag in the morning and you, you'd be really excited because you've got, you think you might have 500 head to walk from one, one spot to the, you know, one bore to the, to the set of yards. And I found myself actually starting to probably struggle to get myself out of bed to go and do my job. And I guess that was, I think about it now and I was probably, I guess in a little way, I was probably, starting to get that little bit depressed um, and not really enjoying my job and not really enjoying what I was doing. And I think it, it started to appear in the work I was doing as well. I'd, you know, I'd do a half fix here and there just to make sure, you know, just to see if I could get it through till maybe I'd get round to it another day. And I, I think that was probably a little bit of depression that came along. Um, but I, I didn't know it at the time, but it was very much, and I think that's probably where I sat back and I went, I'm just over it. I think I got over it fairly quickly. And I think I was, I think I was sat down and had a chat with the manager and I said, I think I'm done. I'm over it. I just want to go home. So that, I think that was probably about. Late September, early October, I had the conversation with him, and I said, "I'm, I'm done. I'm over it. I'm out." So it, um, I don't think he was surprised, um, and I don't think my family was surprised either. My mum had visited me about a couple of weeks earlier, and she'd said to me when I got back to Brisbane, she said, "Yeah, I could see you were very different. You weren't." You weren't yourself. I suppose at this time, would you, you'd only have been about 20 or 21? Yeah, I I was coming up to turning 21, yeah. Did you have that? I mean, looking back at it now, you can recognise a little bit of the depression and at, the, at that point in time, did you have any insight into what you were feeling and what decisions you needed to make to look after yourself? Um. Not really. I think the the biggest decision I had to make was whether or not I wanted to stick it out or whether or not I just wanted to go home. And I think for me, I look for you know. I mean, I still do to some extent. I get I get that little bit homesick when I'm not near near my family, and and you know now it's it's more so you know I'm not near my family or my fiance. So I. I suppose that was probably an element of that that I was because I wasn't enjoying things and I was I was that little bit depressed um I just I just needed to go home and I just needed to be around around people that um that weren't going to I guess I felt like I was being judged a lot so I I needed to be around people that weren't going to judge me I think what's really wonderful though is that now, even though this is, you know, a good 12, 13 years later, you're able to look back and reflect on that time and kind of analyse it somewhat and take your lessons or you have been throughout the past few years being able to draw the lessons out of that, whereas it wouldn't be unheard of if, you know, somebody has that difficult time, makes the decision and then kind of compartmentalise it, not to 
I suppose that's kind of like what happened to your leg, but you know, just put it into in a box and you kind of don't ever go back and visit it and you just kind of get, you know, keep moving on with life. I think it's so great that you've been able to go back and kind of, you know, think about that and challenge what was happening and and learn some lessons from that time in your life. Yeah, and it's it probably has been the last probably the last five years that I've I've actually probably really started to recognise when in myself when things aren't going right um, and I'm not enjoying my job and I guess one of the things I I guess I wouldn't say I live by it but it's it's certainly one of the signs for me to start looking for another opportunity is when I'm if I'm in a job and it's starting to feel like it's it's dragging and I'm not enjoying it I give, usually try and give myself a couple of months and in that couple of months I start looking for a new a new opportunity and and that certainly happened over the years um I, you know once I finished my time up in the Kimberleys and and in in the Northern Territory, I, I came back and I think I was sitting around at home for probably a good three or four weeks and really sort of sunk into a pretty deep hole. And then I went, oh, I, want, I really want to, I really want to do something. I just need to do something. I need to get myself busy. I need to start doing something. And I ended up doing a personal training and strength and conditioning course, which I guess you go from one industry where, um, and certainly in in the northern Ter- in the territory in the Kimberleys, you see the same same sort of ten fifteen people for ten months of the year, and then you drop yourself into an industry where you basically have to be the the loudest talking, the fastest talking, and you know the happy go lucky chat to everyone, and almost try- having to sell yourself in personal training um, to to get clients and to make money, and um, doing that coming from working on on the stations really it was two polar opposites and i i probably i definitely struggled in the first six months that i was i was doing the personal training but then i started to really enjoy it i was getting fitter i was stronger i was i had opportunities where i was coaching rowing so i was back in a sport that i really loved and then opportunities opened up where I could do some strength and conditioning with the rowing programs that I was involved in and I was really excited by that because it meant that not you know I wasn't getting paid peanuts for for coaching rowing and a lot of the the rowing coaching in Brisbane um, at the time and and still is it's very much I guess volunteer and you get a, a a token amount or sort of token of appreciation at the end of the season which might be a couple of hundred bucks or it's, you know, depending on on who you are or what um, coaching qualifications you've got, you might get, you know, maybe a thousand bucks for, for a season's work. So I was um, being being able to, I guess, charge the rowing programs um, an hourly rate to do strength and conditioning work got me really excited and made me really happy that I was able to do that. So. So once you found your, I suppose, your groove again, um, although as yep. I said that, I was like, that sounds really dorky. Um, <laughs> but once you, once you kind of found that again, um, can you just run us through, I suppose, I guess the last decade just briefly, kind of where life has taken you and what you've been able to achieve since um, since your time up north? Yeah, um, I suppose after my time up north, I, 
I started the personal training. Uh, I was working in a couple of gyms in Brisbane um, with that, as well as coaching rowing. As I found out, I probably had more of a passion for coaching rowing and, and coaching in general than um, than doing the personal training. So I was, ended up just doing a lot more lot more coaching than I did personal trainings. Um, and then I went from there. After a couple of years back, um, I decided I should maybe I should go to uni. Um, I tried uni for a couple of years. I started doing an education degree because I thought, well, if I'm coaching in schools, it's not a bad idea to do education and then I can coach and teach. I uh, got a couple of years into that. I failed one of the subjects three times in a row, uh, which was a, uh, what was it? Exercise physiology. That's right. Exercise physiology and I just, I could not pass it for the life of me. And so once I failed it three times, it, um, the uni said, oh, let's maybe rethink um, where you're at. And I said, okay, well, here's my rethinking and I'll just pull out. Uh, so I dropped out of uni after two years doing education and then I uh, went and during that time I'd managed to get myself a job working with the NRL in their game development office, uh, which was, for me, it was another sort of one of those jobs that I never knew existed that I could go into schools and teach kids and show kids how to play footy and end up, I think, in 2013 or 2014, I was really lucky that the the NRL, they were having the All-Stars game on the uh, up in Brisbane, I think it was, and they were having it in Brisbane, so they drove a lot of the players around to to different schools, and I was really lucky to um, to meet a, a whole lot of the players in both the in the two All Stars teams, which you know I became like a I became like a small kid and and completely starstruck when I'm sitting in my car driving to a school with you know, footy players in the car and sort of sitting there going how it was. Yeah, another one of those moments where you go, how am I being paid to do this again? Um, and then I went from there and still coaching rowing and then uh, a few years ago, uh, and midway through 2017, I was approached by a school in New Zealand who um, I'd applied for some, some head coaching jobs over in New Zealand and, and had never got them, um, but I wasn't overly... I wasn't overly concerned or upset and um, they rang me and said, oh, we've got this opportunity um, that's sort of a, an assistant rowing coach and sort of a boarding house supervisor. And I went, well, that sounds kind of cool. And um, so I flew over and and had an interview and, and had a chat with the, the rowing head coach over there, the deputy principal, um, and the, I missed having a chat with the director of boarding. but. Um, had a chat with all of them and a couple of weeks later I, I had a an offer from them and I went, well, here we go. And I opened up a a fairly lengthy conversation with my, um, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, my now fiancé. It, um, it opened up a, a fairly long discussion that went for a fair while because um, she was finishing her Masters of Teaching um, and she was – gearing up to go on her final prac, which was uh, which was going to be out here in Roma. And she was really looking forward to that. And she was, we'd sort of made plans to 
both move out to Roma at the same time and, and do everything together over that time. And then when this job came around, I, I think we, I think there was probably a fair few expletives that came out of her mouth um, that she sort of said, uh, very quickly sort of said, no, um, maybe, and then yes. And so we then sort of gave myself about three weeks to get over and three weeks flew over to New Zealand, landed, and about two days later it was day one of day one of my new job in New Zealand and I ended up being over there for almost two years. And then about this time last year actually I drove drove out to Roma with my fiancé and we've been in Roma ever since. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. I think you are the epitome um, or a prime example of, you know, you just, you never know where life will take you and you can't, you know, judge a book by its cover. Like I'm sure there were, you know, like you said, when you first rocked up at Newcastle and your head stockman and your manager were like, well, who's this kid who's just, you know, got a court date in a few weeks and mucked up in town and, you know, I suppose, yeah, a lot of people could probably, when something like that happens to someone, they just put them in a box and they're like, well, that's kind of where they're going to go in life or that's what they're capable of or that's, you know, that's how far they can go. And you've just completely flipped that and shown people that you can really do whatever you want and it's never, it doesn't, if you make a mistake, it's it can impact your future but you can also use it and still have the future that you want. Is that, did you ever think, you know, that this is where you'd end up? Um, I think after a while, you know, I never actually really know where I'm going to end up um, and I, I don't think I still do. And um, one of the things mum has always said, um, she's always said out of all three of her children, you're the one that you get to that fork in the road and you see the nice smooth tarmac and you see that beautiful nice road and it's freshly laid bitumen and it's all looking fantastic and smooth and then she goes and then you look at the other side and you see the track that's overgrown there's stuff in the way and it just looks really hard to get through she goes you seem to be the child that just goes that could be fun I might go that way challenge accepted yeah yeah oh you put that in my way oh I'm gonna have a go yeah and I think that's that's probably been one of the one one of the biggest things that I've learned from that I learned from the three years I was away in the in the territory in the Kimberleys is just I just have a go at anything and I don't think I think the good thing as well is nothing really scares me all that much anymore um well aside from heights and needles um, nothing really terrifies me all that much. So I, I just seem to go sort of head on into just about anything and people go, oh, God, here we go. Where is this going to end up? Well, that that actually brings us to the next part of the on the, in the end of the podcast really nicely because I wanted to ask you a few questions at the end. Some of these I've kind of cherry-picked from other podcasts because um, I'm just so interested in learning their perspectives and sharing them with other people of people who have, you know, 
had different experiences in life. And the first one I want to throw at you is what is the best advice you've ever received? Because I feel like you've shared some pretty good advice just then. But is there anything that you've received that you kind of still use and has really helped you? Um, probably don't be afraid to just have a go at it. And if you, if you don't, I guess if, you, if you're not successful at it, there's, there's a reason why, but there's always someone to sit back and there's always going to be always going to be the knockers that say, oh, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't be ridiculous. But for me, I guess I, I never knew unless I gave it a go. Um, so probably probably just have a go at it. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if you, you know, you might pick something up and you might learn another way to do something. And, um, yeah, that would probably be, be one of the biggest things, just just have a go at it and if you don't if you're unsure there's always someone standing standing not too far away that will know exact might know exactly how to do it and you'll learn something new now this next one I've borrowed from a podcaster called Lewis Howes and I I can almost anticipate your answer but I'm sure there's probably a few other things that I don't know about which may contribute to this but the question is how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for success later in life Oh wow! Um, yeah, it's a big question. I think it's sort of one of those ones to show that you know sometimes we fail and we may think, oh, you know, this is the worst thing ever, but it can kind of be a blessing in disguise or or be a part of a bigger picture when you look back on it. Yeah, I think probably, I mean, probably for me, the the biggest thing that I guess I've learnt from and and grew the most from was was probably the drink driving. Um, and standing up in court in the courtroom and having a, you know, having the the judge read out your name and what the charge was is you know, it's a really bad way to put it, but it's a really sobering experience when you're standing there and they say you know you are charged with driving under the influence of alcohol with a you know blood alcohol reading of this of this. And it's it brings you crashing down to earth pretty quickly, but then you realise you've you've made a mistake, and you then need to start to work out how is this? How am I going to learn from this? And what am I going to learn from this? And I guess I've, I haven't. A lot of my mates know know that about me that you know that's something that's happened years ago, but it's not something that I've ever used or as an excuse or used as a, as a reason that something hasn't gone right. Um, but it's something that has made me grow and probably, I guess, sort of, yeah, be a lot more of the person that I am now. I think it's that attitude though, that's coming through in your answers is that you, you just said, you know, you have that experience and you think, well, how can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? But that it's making that decision that I think, um, demonstrates like your attitude and your resilience as a person because somebody else could have that experience and it you know sometimes um, hard things will drive you to be better or, or or keep you on that same path or go worse so I just think I just wanted to, to point out that it's your attitude to how you handle that situation is not how everyone would handle it um, and that's a really yeah really admirable quality 
Now, speaking of, you know, advice, um, is there a book? Now, this doesn't necessarily need to be advice, but is there a book that perhaps has influenced you or that you you would recommend for other people to read? Now, it could, it could be like a more serious book that gives you life advice or it could be, you know, Lord of the Rings. So just, just anything, just curious to know what, what you're like as a bookworm or if you are a bookworm. Um, yeah, I'm probably the worst <laughs> bookworm there is. Um, I think if I could have, I remember all the way through school, if the English teacher said to me, oh, we need to read this book, I'd be the first one straight down to the to the video store to see if there was a movie about it. Um, I'm trying to think of even... Is your recommendation going to end up being like the Queensland country life or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not really too sure. I've spent a lot of time over the years reading a lot of books by different athletes. So a lot of the a lot of the cricketers, because I loved cricket growing up, a lot of the the footy players, um yeah, I read a lot of their books mainly because they were they were what interests me. Um so I mean at the moment I'm part way through Sam Thido's book um, and reading a little bit about that. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think just reading all those sports, the sports personalities books, and and realizing that we see them. I guess at the end, not at the end of, I guess at the end of their their career or as their career is taking off. But there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes on before they get to that point where you know, they're playing for Australia or they're they're playing for playing for the Broncos or the Reds or or whichever sporting team it is. You know, there's everything that builds up to that, which is which I find probably more interesting. Yeah. No, I've never actually read a sport an athlete's um book before, so I might go steal well not steal, borrow one out of the library after this. That's um <laughs> that's a good answer. And to finish up, um if you could have a giant billboard like a really big one that would be somewhere where everybody sees it. Um, so you just get heaps of like millions and billions of people are going to see this billboard. What would you put on it? What would it say? Um, I probably want to put a picture of myself on it to go with it. <laughs> I'd probably scare some people. Um, and I get a lot of I get a lot of text messages from mates saying, "Just saw your ugly mug on a billboard." Um, what would it say? You had the whole world's attention and you could just give them one message. Oh, just go out and do it. I think that would be it. Just go and do it. You know, because I think you can sometimes spend way too much time thinking about what the ramifications might be or whether it goes right or wrong. And I think sometimes, yeah, people get get a bit cautious about whether, you know, do I take the the road less travelled or do I take the smooth, easy road? And Probably, yeah, if I could stick anything up on a billboard, just just go out and do it. I do like that you've put it as just go out and do it because if you just said um, just do it, you may have Nike knocking on your door. Yeah. So that is yeah, a, okay. I a might good... Have, might have very high-powered lawyers knocking on my door in Roma. So yeah. Probably be, probably the most interesting thing to happen in Roma at the moment with, uh, yeah. with everything going on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Anthony. It's been absolutely 
wonderful and so insightful to to talk about your experience um, and to I think hopefully I think our listeners will really enjoy this about how you know you don't you came into this industry with absolutely no experience and you had some great experiences in it um, you learn a lot you grew and even with those challenges um, with your within your family and then with your um, you know the the drink driving you had all these obstacles to overcome and you you did that you overcame them and then I suppose what I take away from this so much is that you just never know where life is going to take you and you can't let one mistake or something kind of dictate the trajectory of the rest of your life because, you know, if somebody had said, you know, 15 years ago, oh, this kid got drink driving charge in Catherine, you know, in 15 years' time he's going to be in charge of kids in um, New Zealand and, and an international rowing coach, um, people would be like, nah, that's that's not how that works. Those things don't marry up. but you've just blown yeah, that out yeah, of the yeah. water. And um, I think for people listening who aren't sure, you know, if they want to come into the industry or if they want to stay in it, you've, you've shown them how many different opportunities there are. Mm. No, I mean, yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on. I guess I never, I never sat back and thought of, you know, when I was going through the, the three years I had up in the, in the territory in the Kimberley that I'd be sitting down 15 years later on a podcast um, about my time up there. So that was, um, you know, it was, I guess, yeah, really exciting and and mildly nerve-wracking to be sitting and, and being asked questions all the time for, for the last little bit. So, no, thanks very much. Well, what did I say? I told you it was a good episode. Now, if you enjoyed that episode, make sure you drop us a review and a rating if you're listening via the Apple Podcast app, because that's pretty much the only thing that Apple uses to recommend podcasts to other people. So um, please drop us a review. Five stars. No, just kidding. As many stars as you like. <laughs> Five. Um, Also, make sure you come and join our Facebook group, which is Central Station Podcast, where we can talk about some of the things in our podcast. We also share other stuff. And if there's somebody that you want to hear on this podcast, please reach out and let us know. Drop us a line in the Facebook group through our Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, through our website. If there's somebody that you want to hear from, let us know and we will chase them down, pursue them nicely persistently, uh, which is how we got Anthony on the podcast. Somebody recommended him to us and here you go. Now we've got him. So um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I look forward to bringing you another story next week. And in the meantime, um, before you pop out of this podcast, if you can just stick around for another 30 seconds, we've got a really important message coming to you from our friends over at Dolly's Dream. There's one thing we all need right now, a bit of kindness. In these uncertain times, it's important everyone makes an effort to be kind. Almost one million Australian kids are bullied each year. Together, we can change things. It's not just about being nice. It's about working together to make a difference in the world. Be a mate on May 8. Do it for Dolly Day and be kind to each other. Visit dollysdream.org.au.